0: Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from Seedcamp. Today I have a great friend as a guest, Vincent Jacobs. Vincent spent some time at Seedcamp helping us with a lot of great uh, deal sourcing and also just identifying interesting sectors. And he's also quite himself, quite technical and has built a lot of the internal systems that are powering Kima. And so one of the things that will be interesting to talk about in his role as Kima as an investor lead and and someone who really powers the Kima organization, but also kind of how he innovates internally. So welcome to the show, Vincent. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, uh, let's start off a little bit with your background. Um, you know, I alluded to it in the beginning, in the intro, but maybe we take a step back. What did you study and, and what was the first thing you did um, w- with that right afterwards?
1: Sure. Um, so I've lived to all my life. My dad works in the oil industry, so we traveled around every four years or so. And then for university, I ended up back in Belgium uh, where I studied economics. Uh, first a bachelor's, then a master's, and then I kind of ended up on that uh, typical PhD track of going into academia that people seem to end up in instead of getting jobs. Um, So I did that for about two years, kind of took a couple PhD level courses, uh, but after a few years, realized it wasn't quite for me. So I decided I wanted to do something else, but that was around, you know, 2009, 2010, you know, the economy had just uh, gone downhill a little bit, and there wasn't really that much uh, kind of in terms of a typical career role, so I started to look at what else I could do. Mm-hmm. Um, so i did written my master's thesis on, some, on something called prediction markets. Uh, these are markets where you basically trade options to predict the outcome of any event. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd look mainly at the 2008 presidential elections, and I'm, I'm taking part again this year, 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and then through that, I got, through a friend, I got in touch with a startup here in London uh, that was, well, working on kind of an application of that in the sports betting space.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, now I'm just curious. Have you written any kind of predictions on what's going to happen this year for the U.S. election? Um, well, so I've been looking at the markets and I have placed some bets
1: on it. Uh, I mean, the odds are very much in in Clinton's favor at the moment. Uh, I think they're showing about sixty six percent chance of Clinton becoming president. Uh, Trump is pretty low. I think around uh, let's say around twenty five percent at the moment. Really? But there's still quite a big discrepancy. Bernie Sanders is still trading around five percent, and then the rest of the field still has Oh, it's people like Joe Biden, um, even people like Mitt Romney might step in.
0: All right, well, what you guys are not seeing here is uh, a lot of the stats that uh, Vincent is, is looking at to generate these kinds of predictions. But what's really cool, and we're gonna jump into a little bit later, is how Vincent's brain works and basically how he comes up with a lot of these things and how he's brought some of that into the investment flow of Kima. Maybe we start a little bit backwards. I know that we were gonna talk about this maybe towards the end, but maybe we just kick it off at the very beginning. Um, what makes Kima a good fund to work in for you and, and what are the things that you've done within it and what are the innovations that you've, you've taken uh, in terms of what you've seen in other funds but then implemented in your sort of own way? Sure, yeah. So firstly like to give kind of an overview of, of Kima. Um So I tend to say we're pretty unique in the sense that we're
1: somewhere between an angel and a VC. Uh, So we call ourselves ventures, Uh, we look like a venture fund from the outside, but the money comes from our one partner, Xavier and So we're basically a a super angel that's structured a bit more as a fund. Uh, So with that, we focus purely on seed investing. So we usually invest about 150,000 US dollars per company, and about two to three companies per week. We've been doing this since about 2010. I joined about three years ago, and we have a portfolio of about 380 companies now. Um, So to go into what kind of makes us unique and why people come to us, I think, firstly, the fact that we're, well, back in 2010 at least, and then going on now, one of the big advantages was that we were easy to work with. In the sense that most VC funds, it's a series of meetings, convincing a lot of people, just a not particularly smooth process. And Kima, back when, when Jeremy started in 2010 with Xavier, was very efficient in terms of how people approach and then quick decisions and quick funding. I think that comes a lot from our structure—the fact that we don't have limited partners, mm. the fact that you know we have one person to report to and we report to for everything. He signs off on all investments, uh, but it's all very quick because there's no real steps to go through. Mm. Um, you yeah.
0: know. And so, when you joined, um, it was just Jeremy pretty much on the investment side, and you brought in a lot of new thinking. I mean, when you were at seed Camp, obviously you had had the chance to look through the way that we. Uh, Spend a lot of time looking at multiple applications and although I don't think we invest at a pace of two or three a week We definitely invest in you know about 20 to 30 annually and so maybe um, That exposure you know brought you some ideas on how to parse um, Seeing great quality deal flow, but at the same time making smart decisions You want to walk us through kind of the, the, the magic behind Kima the way that you've structured it in the last three years? Sure sure
1: So came so started in 2010 like I said at the time it was just Zave and, uh, and Jeremy based in Tel Aviv uh, and then I joined about three years later in 2013. Uh, so up to that point there were no employees it was really Jeremy managing the whole fund doing everything himself uh, and as such because it's one person um, it was very reliant on, on email and it didn't really work with multiple people because it was all in his inbox it was all you know a couple of spreadsheets where people applied online. Uh, But it wasn't really structured to function as a team or scale up with headcount. Um, So when I joined in 2013, it was, um, well, the first two hires, so myself and my colleague Michel, who joined um, at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he has a developer background, so he was focused more on building software, while I would come from Seedcamp, so I was focused more on uh, kind of the deal flow, evaluation, finding company side. Uh, I think what we realized then is that we couldn't rely on email just because there are three of us now. Uh, Jeremy was in Tel Aviv, Michelle was in Paris, I was in London. So we kind of had to figure out ways to you know, work together well. So first it was very simple, very much over email. Jeremy would forward us emails. We would take a look and reply on email. Uh, that, this is pre-Slack, so we we kind of talked to each other on Google Hangouts uh, and all kind of one-to-one instead of uh, as a group. Mm. Uh, so then what Michelle started doing was focusing on building a platform to allow us to evaluate new companies coming in. That's kind of our first bottleneck. So, how do we fix that? Mm. So, we built this thing called Kima Lab uh, that our new employee Alexi is now continuing to work on. Mm-hmm. And um, Michelle kind of single handedly built this platform, which basically pulls in all of our deals into one place. Uh, it pulls in all, basically, every company we've ever seen is in there with comments, with notifications. And it also kind of has all of our, our accounting records. So, for each company, we have the record of what wires we sent, what the latest share prices are, what percentage we hold, what our stake is worth. And it's all kind of on the central platform. So anyone on our team that joins today can log in there, see all the portfolios, see all the conversations we've had about them, see all the statistics about the the accounting. And yeah, everyone is kind of immediately up to speed and kind of has access to the same platform.
0: Mm. And one of the things that you do as well is you provide startups with visibility where they are in that pipeline. Yeah, yeah. so that's something new we launched. I think um, most VC funds have always
1: had these kind of contact at info at email addresses, Uh, but in general, no one checks them. I think at CCAMP, I checked it occasionally, but you know it's pretty much a black box. Things go in and then maybe you'll get a response, but probably not. Yeah. Uh, so we had that as well, but we had it more structured as, as an actual form on the website. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's basically two kind of standard application forms. One is the Angelus application, uh, which was for a thing called Kima 15, which is a fixed offer we had. And the other was kind of the direct application for funding. If you don't know us, you can fill in this form. And what happens if you fill in this form, which is hosted on type form, it gets pulled into this platform we've built at that point, everyone votes on it. So four people will look at what you've submitted in terms of the deck, the summary, the company, everything you've sent, uh, and then all four of us will vote. If it's a yes, it moves along this pipeline. Uh, If it's a no, it gets an automatic email saying it doesn't really fit. And I think what we figured at that point was we have this data. We know exactly where every company is in this pipeline at any time. Uh, So why don't we expose this? Why don't we make this available to the founders who are applying? You know, they want to know, you know, people are actually looking at it. They want to know how long They've been waiting, and ideally also know what the expected time is between the steps. Uh, and because it was built already, it was pretty simple for her, Lexi, to spend a, a few days kind of making that public. So there's two main parts. One is the kind of public dashboard, which anyone can see at uh, uh which shows the number of companies at each stage of the pipeline. Uh, so the first is kind of the show-off number of how many companies we see per week, as uh, so that's companies that apply directly, companies that email, yeah. companies that we scrape from things like Product Hunter, AngelList, or any other site like that. Uh, and then it shows kind of the standard pipeline. First, the companies we review, which are companies that have gotten a positive vote from one of the team members, then analysis when someone decides to take a deeper look, then negotiation when we're agreed to invest and we're working on the terms, and then finally closing. Uh, but I mean, how much,
0: like maybe this is a little bit more of a, a question regarding philosophy. What is the view about providing better feedback. So it's less about status because, yep. you know, one of the things that the uh, there was an interview, I think that Harry did of, of, of Fred and he was talking about the challenges of having to provide startups with rejection uh, feedback and that sometimes that created more of a, a circular reference where like you'd give feedback and then all of a sudden somebody would question that feedback and you would never kind of end. And to some extent what you're providing founders with this very transparent process is kind of where they are, but not why they are. You know, not why they've been bumped, and, and I'm just curious as to what your philosophy is on, on providing relevant feedback to, to companies on, on how they can iterate to re-go through that process. Yeah, yeah. So the second piece of status is uh,
1: kind of a tracking tool. So every company that applies to us via the form will get a standard email and they'll get a unique code, which they can then type into this platform status and find out where they are. Uh, but yes, yeah, so if they get a kind of a rejection email after the first uh, vote, then... It's a template. We don't be, We can't provide feedback there. If they email, we try to. Um, but yeah, like you say, there's the comment that every time you reply to an entrepreneur with this is why we're not investing, that they will and should come back with, well, here's why you're wrong. Here's you know, me addressing yeah. these concerns. And that happens every time. So I think in general, when we've had um, you know the minimal, which is an email or a call with a founder rather than just a cold application, uh, we do always provide feedback. But that usually takes the form of a couple of sentences Uh, Like, here's what we like, here's what we don't like or have concerns about, and that's why we're passing, rather than just saying no. Um, I think just at the scale we're operating, I think with 500 companies, we can't give them all feedback every time Mm -hmm. they apply. Uh, So it's really limited to the ones um, that, yeah, that that we actually have some kind of interaction with.
0: Yeah. You know, one of the things that we kind of identified as an area that might be interesting to chat about was this relationship of, of startups with... Investors in the UK versus the US and 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 how that's changing and in, in the context of sort of rejections in the context of feedback in the context of Sort of support and introductions What what is in your experience since you guys invest kind of all over the place? Yep. What is your experience investing in the UK versus investing elsewhere?
1: Sure. Yeah, so we do invest well all around the world um, I think a lot we do these days is in um Uh, well, in France and in in the US. So I think looking at the portfolio right here, about 27% at the moment, so about 100 of our companies are based in France, or or at least registered as French companies in some way. Uh, About 43% is in the US, and the UK makes about 8%, so about 30 uh, of our companies. Um, And because of that, we see lots of different, well, legal structures, lots of different fundraising environments. I think one thing that's very different in the UK is is mainly at the angel level. So we invest about 150,000 US dollars per company, uh, in most of Europe, that's, you know, a nice seed check, maybe an angel round. In the US, that's usually a participation of a bigger round. Mm. Um, in the UK, it's very different because of the EIS and SEIS structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what happens here is that the angel round is usually very early, much earlier than in other countries and much larger. So you basically go out with an idea, a team put together, and they end up raising this SAS cap, which is about 150,000 pounds. Uh, so that kind of changes the dynamic quite a bit in the sense that, you know, when we're going to come in in the UK these days, it's probably not going to be part of that £150,000 because we're a French entity, so we don't have a tax benefit to investing here. Um, uh, so we would probably come in later as part of larger rounds. Mm. Uh, and then the consequence of the SAS is, is two things that I see. One, well, three I guess. One is that it brings in people who might not be investing typically in startups, which can be a good thing, getting unique skills in, but can also be a bad thing because they don't have the risk tolerance, they don't understand what they're getting into. Uh, secondly, the Implications of the tax benefit means that valuations tend to be quite a bit higher Mm -hmm. uh, because the investors are investing, well not always, but often largely for that tax benefit rather than because they want upside from the company. So the seed valuation at that round tends to be quite high given that it's pre-product given that it's very early. I think the third part is that it comes with certain conditions. So SAS requires you to invest in ordinary shares, you can't have a liquidation preference, Uh, there's a few hacks around that that are coming up in the last few months, Mm -hmm. Uh, but still that's an issue for a fund that tends to invest in preferred shares, Um, that companies here basically just issue ordinary at the seed, and then some that we've spoken to at the seed, including some seed camp companies have said, well, we don't expect to ever issue preferred shares.
0: Mm. Do you think that that's um, maybe a, a desire for investors to have, but not necessarily the norm, or is that still the norm, sort of at the seed stage to have pref shares?
1: I think it's Series A and up, it's definitely the norm. I think it's rare to see Series A investment without preferred, mm-hmm. you know, the standard 1x non-participating, anything else is, is strange, multiples or, or participating is, is odd. Um, I think it's seed. I think in most of the world, yes, it's is, is still preferred. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in, in the UK, it isn't. I think in the US, what you end up doing is you would never, well, very rarely do a seed round that's equity. So you do a convertible note, which would mm-hmm. then convert into preferred. It wouldn't convert into ordinary mm-hmm. at any point. Uh, while the same thing happens here, you try to invest in a convertible note. And you know the condition is it'll convert at a qualified financing, which is a certain amount, which is a certain share class of preferred. And then they say, well, we don't intend to ever issue preferred. Mm. Uh, so that also doesn't quite happen, mm. uh, but I, I think for seed, I think you know we still use the seed summit term sheet, mm-hmm. uh, which is a seed camp. Uh, well, was part of that, well, the leader of that, mm-hmm. uh, when we do equity investments, and that is indeed preferred shares, very standard. Um, but just for simplicity, we end up doing a lot in terms of um, in terms of convertible notes, mainly outside of the UK, but also we've done more recently in the UK, which then converted within a few months into the next round, which is led by two you know, large C funds in, in London. And they then invested in preferred.
0: Yeah, but if we go back to second to your sort of deal distribution, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned obviously the U.S. and uh, and you mentioned uh, France. Yeah. Um, maybe you can comment on kind of your view. I mean, this is this is skewed, I would say. Like I think when you look at stats of sort of global investing, I think the U.K. is is maybe ahead of France, but obviously the way that Kimo operates and where it was born was France centric. Yep. But maybe, do you have a view kind of where the emerging hubs are at the moment? Um, what are, the, what are the, the things that stand out in terms of like um, sectors in, in Europe that are really strong and, and where those hubs are for them? Yeah, yeah. So I think when I say we have about 40% in the
1: US, often that is European founders who happen to be in the US. Okay. So that's probably often you know, French founders who go to New York for tech summers, uh, you know British founders who end up in San Francisco. Uh, in terms of kind of emerging hubs, yeah, we, we like to invest everywhere. Um, I think this shows well. Quite a few. I have a pie chart open here that shows you know quite a few small stakes and a couple of big ones. I think France was a historic thing because well, Savignyel, our partner, is very well known in France. Our new partner, the we added Jean in in Paris, his network is very much in France. So I think with the last fifty investments or so we've done, uh, a very very significant part of that is in France. Mm-hmm. In terms of emerging. Uh, We do like to look just anywhere. I think that makes us very flexible. I think a lot of UK funds, again, maybe for structural reasons, for tax reasons, are able to only invest in the UK, uh, while we genuinely look everywhere. And I think that opens up a lot of opportunities, I think, in terms of emerging markets. yeah, I think Lisbon is obviously one that Seacamp was very early to, went to when I was at Seacamp about three years ago. Mm-hmm. And I'm going there next week for a week uh, to help Portugal Ventures and then for a conference. I think you know, that's definitely a place a lot of people want to live. A lot of engineers are now going into startups. Mm-hmm. Um, but we like kind of serving underserved markets. So we're currently looking at an investment in, um, in Lithuania, where I was for a conference a few weeks ago. Uh, we're doing currently an investment, I can't quite name them, but in a company from, uh, from the Czech Republic. Uh, a very solid SaaS business, you know, built a great product that people love, doing doing great monthly revenue. But because they're based in the Czech Republic, there's not many options. I mean, there's Credo who does a great job investing there. Yeah. Uh, but really, they're kind of built a, a great product that people love. They now have serious revenue to the point where where they yeah they could be profitable if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. And now they need to focus on on scaling that, figuring out the acquisition channels, raising more money for that, and then they come to someone like us. Um, to do that. And I think in their case, they're also going to the US, joining a US accelerator to really help with that customer acquisition piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, yeah, we see that the great startups can, can start anywhere. We're really agnostic. We have a few investments in, in Pakistan, uh, in India. We have a great company in, uh, in Brazil that's mm-hmm. doing very well. One of my favorite investments is a company uh, out of Australia called Promise Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we invested, when well, I joined Kima about three years ago, the Australian venture scene was was very well the nation, it was very much starting out. Uh, There was one program called uh, Startmate that focuses on kind of getting them out of Australia, getting them straight to San Francisco. Uh, While we found this company on AngelList, um, great founders, great kind of market in terms of fintech and payments. And we invested very, very early at a a very low valuation at the time. And now they're doing very well. They're a very global company, three different offices, uh, large headcount. So I think Mm -hmm. there are these, you know, diamonds in the rough. There's great people everywhere, and we just have to figure out ways to find them.
0: Yeah, and and are you guys focusing on sectors now? Like are you targeting... I know that you use AngelList extensively to go look for companies. Um, So for those founders that are listening, if you want to get into Akima's pipeline, definitely be on AngelList. Um, But in terms of sectors that you're attracted to, that maybe you're taking a speculative view on, uh, are there anything that stand out at the moment? So we are very agnostic,
1: so I think because of the stage we invest at, we are opportunistic. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of ideal scenario would be in terms of we um, invest in a company when that market is forming, and then you know hopefully a couple of years later that market appears and becomes very large. I think kind of chasing market trends. I think we're probably too late for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it, when we see drones taking off and becoming the big thing, it's probably too late for us to invest because the ones that are going to do well raised funding a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. You know, at the moment you've got so Bitcoin there's probably you know a bit of a hype. Um, you know, chatbots. Once chatbots becomes a big thing and every VC is doing podcasts about them, it's probably too late for us to, to pick those winners. Mm-hmm. So I think we're focused very much on being opportunistic and. Mm-hmm. And, you know, things that come in, when it's interesting, we, we see, we think great founders, great market. Uh, maybe it's not large yet, but then we can invest in that. I think looking at kind of the trends, uh, we but, do...
0: But hold on, I'll, on that, I'll push back on that a little bit, because th- take something like AI, right? Yep. Yes, it's in vogue. Uh, but I would say that it's as much relevant today as it will be five years from now. Uh, and the same thing could be said for cybersecurity and for clean energy. Mm-hmm. The, the waves are mostly... in how much money goes into the sector. But the the fact that those sectors have so much progress to make sure. before they're even anywhere near where we need them to be. Like, I, you could argue that social media at this point is is pretty good. Like, yeah. you know, there's always new channels, Snapchat and whatnot, that, that pop up and that sort of take traffic away from somebody else. But clean energy, like batteries that last longer than a day on a phone, um, you know, artificial intelligence that goes beyond just calendaring, like all those kinds of things. Is it ever too late to to sort of, to take a bet there? Um, No, no, so I
1: don't think it's too late. Um, I think there will always be companies popping up. I think what I'm more afraid of is, uh, I guess, me too behavior. In the sense that every company that was doing something in text is suddenly a a chatbot. Mm -hmm. Every company that's doing Anything really using data is suddenly an AI company or a machine learning company. While well, uh, two years ago, they would have been a data company. Um, I, I, just, I, I guess I'm concerned about the Me Toos.
0: And the Me Toos uh, has an impact on valuation, an impact on sustainability and intellectual property. Yeah, yeah. I think
1: also in terms of just trying to pick the winner. Like, are they doing this because it's the cool thing to do? Or are they doing it because they actually have something unique or they have an insight on this market? Mm-hmm. Um, I think also because it ends up being very, very fragmented. I think in terms of chatbots for, for example, customer support, uh, suddenly there's 20 companies doing that. Uh, There's one large one out of Spain that raised a bunch of money about two, three years ago. And now there's all these small startups, two-person teams basically doing the same thing. Uh, It's just kind of hard for us to pick who's going to be the winner in that case. so I think the ideal situation is if we can invest in great founders and great markets before that that hype happens. Uh, if it doesn't happen, of course, we do look at all these companies in these spaces. Um, and if we find a great one, then of course, we will invest in that company. Um, but yeah, I, I think we don't try to chase trends. Uh, I guess that's more what I'm getting at. That we don't say, okay, suddenly, you know, this big VC has written a blog post about chatbots. Let's go look at the chatbot market. Um, or, you know, everyone's talking about insurance tech. We're, we're not really going to try and look for the best insurance company at that stage because the best companies are probably at series A, series B stage by that point. Yeah. Um, so it's more about, you know, knowing what's going on. Um, and so how,
0: how can a, a founder though, that is in this space with having to fight with the, with maybe the fact they're not the first, Yeah. but maybe they have something that's interesting. Sure. How, how can they reach out to investors like you without having the, that sort of level of, of sort of I wouldn't call it cynicism, but I would say like a, 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 a bias. You're saying like, look, if you're not the first one off the blocks, I probably missed it, right? And how how can a, um, a founder penetrate that? And what's the best way for them to reach you? I, I think cynicism
1: is kind of a good good way of putting it in the sense that um, certain markets are no longer in favor with VCs. I think I think ad tech is kind of the big one that no VC wants to touch these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're pitching an ad tech company, most ad tech companies that pitching these days, they have one of their first slides that says we are not an ad tech company. Like they explicitly state that. They kind of jump in and say, okay, here's the preconceived notion you'll have about us. And here's me addressing it in advance. Um, and I think the best founders will come back with a good response to that. If they email me and I say, okay, um, you know, they pitch us on the company, I say, okay, here's five that are doing exactly the same thing. And in my eyes, they look the same, but in founders eyes, they don't look the same. So I think a good founder will come back with a proper you know, market diagram and say, look, here's how we're different. Here's how we've proven that we're different. Here's the customers that are switching from these tools to us, uh, rather than just dis- dismissing and saying, no, we're the only one, or we're better for this vague reason. Um, and yeah, I think in terms of reaching out to investors, I think there is a value in kind of preempting that. In terms of, if you're talking to investors, you'll probably get the same pushback over and over. I think ad tech, people will say, well, ad tech, it doesn't scale. You'll get some nice early customers and then you won't grow. I think chatbots, people will say, okay, there's 10 companies. Here's the 10 companies I've seen this week doing what you're doing. I think you can preempt that in reach out like, have a strong competition side, which I think is one of the slides that's most often missing. I think the slide that I end up asking for the most when someone sends me a desk deck is um, send me the competition side because they leave that out for some reason. Um, I think you can just, preempt that. Uh, I think you know what I'm going to ask you uh, so why not just answer that before I ask?
0: Yeah it makes sense. and, and I guess you're also not particularly fond of fundraisers and, and those kinds of um, those kind of campaigns. Sure sure in terms of how to reach out to yeah. investors. Um,
1: so I think we try to make it easy. We try to make it direct. I think we're pretty unique in the sense that this platform we talked about before, uh, any company that applies will actually be looked at by every member on our team. Otherwise, it's stuck in the pipeline. So every member of our team will look at anyone who applies, which I think is is very rare among VC funds. Yeah. Uh, even accelerators, you know, maybe one person on the team will be assigned something. Well, of us, every single employee on our team will look at everything. Yeah. Um, and I think because of that, we like people to approach us directly.
0: Yeah.
1: I think the common you know trope mentioned by by investors is that you know introductions are the best way to do it. I think having a strong signal is always going to be the best thing for you. Yeah. If you can get someone that, in my eyes, has a you know, good judgment, good good signal to reach out on your behalf. Say, check out this company, and that's always a good thing to do. I think you know one thing I definitely dislike is using you know people in between, using professional fundraisers uh, to reach out to investors. I think I, I think it's a makes sense at kind of later stages, Series B, Series C's, uh, where you're making complex financial models, maybe bringing in you know non-conventional investors, be it proper. Uh, mutual funds rather than VC funds. Uh, and I think at that point it becomes valuable. But for Seed Sage, what I have multiple times a week is some corporate finance advisor that's been hired by a startup who basically puts together a deck. Sent it out to a bunch of investors on on BCC, uh, and then they expect to take 5% of the round as a fee for doing so. And I just think it's. it's, I
0: mean, that's not really around in the UK as much as it, I guess it was at one point. Is that still kind of in other other geographies that you're seeing that?
1: I think it's larger in, in other geographies. I think in France in particular, it's very common. Uh, for people to kind of outsource their fundraising, uh, my colleague Jean used to be a fundraiser himself. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I wrote a blog post about this, and then Jean wrote the rebuttal, saying, "Here's what you should look for." Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good way to do it. So I think there are cases where it makes sense, and
0: that's excellent. You, your your colleagues rebut your your blog posts. Yeah, I did
1: that on purpose. So, um, uh, yeah, we basically said you know ninety nine percent. You them together. You
0: prep them together on Twitter, right? Yeah, yeah, so at the, at the bottom I link,
1: okay, look, here's my opinion. And then Jean wrote this, this rebuttal saying, yeah. here's the other side of the story. But I think in general, in my eyes, it, it's bad. I think there's value that can be had by, by fundraisers. Yeah. But in 99% of the cases, these fundraisers have no relationship with me. Uh, They basically just BCC a bunch of investors and then they charge 5% of the round. I think that's just an absurd amount of money to be giving up. And it's an immediate negative signal. I think if anyone except the founder is reaching out, uh, it's just a a huge negative signal to the point where I probably won't look at that company
0: ever again. Talking about negative signals, um, last six months... What's that been like? I mean, you know, it's very, it's very interesting to ask you these questions because I know that you have so many stats that power kind of the Kima platform. And I'm just curious as to what, what has been your, your sort of perception of angel activity and and bridge rounds in the last six months?
1: Yeah. So I think there's definitely been a shift towards the end of last year. I think what we saw is especially in the U S around Thanksgiving, when people are going on holiday towards the end of November, there were a lot of startups that we saw have commitments from angels, from seed funds. And then, you know, when the holidays ended in kind of January and they went to say, okay, we've got the documents complete. Let's close this. Uh, Those people suddenly stopped replying to emails. Uh, The market somewhat dried up because of public markets drying up as well. People have less liquidity, so they're less interested in in angel investing. Uh, I think what we saw there was a lot of people dropping off. A lot of these companies that, were let's say raising a 500 to a million dollar round who had everything committed. And then when they went to call up those commitments, it just didn't materialize. So they ended up with a lot less money than they expected to. Um, and I think that has somewhat recovered already. I think there was kind of a, an overcorrection at some point, uh, valuation suddenly dropped quite a bit, uh, maybe half what they were three, six months ago, uh, number of commitments from angels suddenly dropped. And now we see it kind of getting back to a, to a somewhat normal level. Uh, so it depends on the company. I think in Europe, what we're seeing is that there's suddenly a lot of seed funds, there's a lot of A funds, a lot of at least five or six funds have started up in the last six months that do Series A. So I think that's going to suddenly pick up the market a lot on that stage. I think if you're a solid company in Europe looking to raise a Series A, there's so many more options than there were certainly two, three years ago, mm. um, and that angel stage is somewhat correcting. So there's getting back into the market.
0: Let's let me let's touch a little bit more about the, the Series A and C and seed, seed stage, uh, especially in your experience seeing your companies raising additional rounds. Yep. Firstly, um, what is it that you are seeing as the minimum level for a company after you've invested to be able to raise their next round? You know there uh, Christoph Jans just put out a blog post recently about kind of like the metrics Per different stage. And, you know, for series A, it was anywhere between 100 K MRR to 250 K MRR. Um, but I just wanted to get your views, especially like outside of the UK, you know, potentially within France, what, what are the attributes that you're seeing require a successful series A? And then for those that haven't accomplished that or cannot, what is the amount of companies that are successfully raising a bridge, which seems to be a lot more common now because of, of some of these hurdles being as high as they are? Sure, sure. I think it goes back
1: to the point of before in terms of, you know, the UK, SAS raising a pretty significant amount of money at a reasonably high valuation early on. I think you then have to prove that. Because then when you go to, to VCs, uh, they see it as, you know, you've raised this amount of money ar- already, uh, rather than, you know, it's a pure seed company that's raised an angel round. Uh, I think bridge rounds, we see more and more, uh, mainly as the focus of uh, companies that raised a large seed round and then didn't quite get the metrics to justify uh, Series A. Uh, and those are always probably the hardest. I think even in, in San Francisco, where there's a great company that has a lot of uh, you know, fear of missing out, everyone wants to jump on the seed, that is completely gone when there's a bridge round. Uh, you know, raising your first 2 million on idea and the concept on potential, you know, you'll get lots of people throwing in, especially if you have a large um, VC, there's you know, $10 behind every you know, uh, tier A VC. Uh, But then that same company, if they don't hit the milestones and they're raising a bridge because they're they're running out of money, uh, then there's zero interest there. And I think a lot of founders still expect their current VCs to just give them a blank check and say, you know, we're in for supporting you. But uh, I I think that also doesn't happen. I think VCs are also uh, keen on backing their winners and not kind of automatically giving more money to the ones that didn't hit the milestones that they said they would. Mm. Um, what was the second part of the question in terms of Series A in metrics?
0: Yeah, the series. What, what you're seeing, especially for companies that are outside of the U.S. but yep. not in the U.K., so France, Lithuania, any of the other ones, what are you seeing as as like maybe a different set of of criteria, or do they need to leave those countries and, and move to to somewhere else?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so I think it depends. I think it depends also on the size of round you've raised before. I think this idea of doing multiple seed rounds and saying, well, we haven't raised a series A, so we're raising a series A. uh, VCs will say, okay, you've raised two million as a seed round. You you have to be where you should be with that two million. Um, I think what we have seen, particularly in in France uh, recently, is two of our um, kind of seed investments in France, both SaaS businesses, have gone out to raise significant rounds. Uh, One's called Zen Chef and one's called uh, AB Tasty. Uh, So they. are both SaaS businesses, both solid in terms of recurring revenue. So what they did is they've raised um, a series, well, seed round to kind of build the product, series A to launch in France and build significant traction in France. Then when they have the typical, you know, series A SaaS metrics of, let's say, 100k MRR, 150k MRR, probably higher in France than it is in the US, uh, they then raise what we would call a series B in France. So let's say around 6 million, 5 million euros. And that's basically to take Europe. So that's basically to say, okay, we've built a solid SaaS business that basically serves just France and maybe a couple of tests in other countries, and then they'll raise this, what's called a Series B here, in the US it might be called a Series A, um, to basically prove out, can we scale this other countries, can we take France and do Germany, can we do the Netherlands, can we do the UK, usually often with a, a country manager a launcher in each country. And then with that, they'll get to a point where they can show that, okay, this works everywhere, and then they'll probably go to the U.S. and raise a larger round uh, from a U.S.-based investor to then, you know, build this solid business towards IPO. Yeah.
0: Um, Moving away from from companies for a second and more about um, the differences in different countries, uh, you wrote a blog post recently about how you believe U.K. regulation just killed the startup sector. Maybe you can touch a little bit about kind of that and what... Uh, different geographies can do to sort of prevent those kinds of things?
1: Sure, um, yes, so I, I like this concept of regulatory arbitrage, um, the fact that companies will locate wherever the regulation is favorable for what they're doing. I think in the UK we talk a lot about the examples of where the UK has encouraged innovation, you know, there's a very good dialogue between number 10 and the startup scene, uh, there, there's Tech City that's doing a great job of, of building things through a government that, you know, is good for the startups and we often talk about regulation having a positive impact on the UK startup scene. I think the examples I gave, um, quoting someone else, was in terms of drones. Amazon tests their drones here because in the U.S. it's too difficult. 23andMe sells their genetic kits here because in the U.S. It, it's pretty difficult to do legally. Um, and then fintech is a big one that we talk about in terms of uh, you know, the, the FCA um, has made it very easy Relatively, at least compared to the US, to launch fintech businesses here, to kind of go through a regulatory sandbox and test things with less capital requirements. And as such, we've seen these challenger banks here, which are pretty unimaginable in most of the world. I think in in the US, Simple is probably the best example, but they couldn't build a bank because it's too difficult. You have to get licenses in every state. Uh, We actually have two companies that are doing pretty similar things in fintech one in the UK, one in the US. The UK one launches in in a tenth of time, pretty much, because just of that regulation, just getting a banking partner, capital requirements. Um, So with with this blog post, what I basically wanted to do was make the point that this goes both ways. Uh, So policy, whether intentional or not, can also completely discourage a startup sector. So a sector that um, I've been reading up a bit is is nootropics, Mm -hmm. which is uh, smart drugs. It's kind of a, a vague... Uh, market. But yeah,
0: our, our mutual friend Philip had put a Facebook post something about where, where we could get Nootropics. It's kind of curious as to whether or not right now Nootropics is something that's even available in a, in a sort of easy way for various reasons. Sure. So, so yeah, so what I mentioned is that it's gone from kind
1: of these these hacker com, biohacker communities, the, the subreddit on Nootropics. And now the, there's basically two startups that have raised quite a bit of money in the US. One one from Andreessen Horowitz uh, that basically wants to package these into a consumer product. Uh, because at the moment it's people mixing powders, making their own caps, and it's not really a market. So basically two companies that are selling these as consumer products. And then what I talk about in this post is that um, last week the UK, well, it came into power, I think called the psychoactive substances bill, which is uh, basically before drug policy in the UK was that everything is legal until it's been explicitly made illegal. Well, this law basically makes everything illegal unless explicitly made legal. Uh, And the consequence of that is obviously to stop these head shops that are selling, you know, dangerous drugs that are pretty similar to what's already illegal. But as a consequence, they ended up banning anything that has a psychoactive effect, you know, regardless of what that is. I I think I mentioned as well that um, tea would be illegal if it didn't have an explicit uh, exception in that law. And what that's done is basically made nootropics as a field, uh, well, completely illegal in the UK. You can't sell anything with a psychoactive um, effect. Um, so what's happened is any of these businesses that were starting up here because, you know, there's great medical research here. There's great pharma companies uh, have now left the UK because, well, the, it's, it's completely illegal for them to do what they're doing. You know, the law and the point is that the law wasn't intended to do this. The law was intended to stop these dangerous illegal highs and to stop, you know, kids on the high street buying these. Uh, but as a consequence of the law, yeah, you know, it basically makes it impossible to run a business knowing that in the letter of the law, what you're doing is illegal. In the spirit of the law, it's fine, but you can't operate a business in that kind of environment. Mm. So basically, passing you know regulation that was intended to do one thing, you've also kind of automatically killed a, a whole s- potential startup sector.
0: Yeah, no, that makes complete sense, and you know it, it is a pity in some ways, and and it's hard for policymakers as well, right? I mean, they they have multiple advisors, but at the end of the day, they kind of have to sort of try to go to the to the the, the decision that probably helps the most people. Um, On that note, uh, Vincent, thanks for joining us. Uh, I think we could go on for hours, just because I know that you have some deep opinions about a lot of things. Um, What, what? um, Maybe we can conclude with um, maybe your top three tips, uh, whether it be books, or blogs to follow, or sort of things to work on for founders. Hmm. Yeah. um, Good question. So I think.
1: Uh, we're definitely trying to write more. So, so follow our Arkema on uh, Medium. I think all of us can publish there. I think we'll, we'll try and do more and more there. We also started having uh, founders publish content, mm-hmm. uh, working with you know, professional writers and basically help them put together you know, a, a story of what they're doing on a particular subject. Um, I think podcast is definitely something that, that's been very useful to me recently in terms of whenever I'm walking somewhere, or I'm on the tube, I, I open up you know, the Injuries and Horowitz podcast on a certain subject or, or the C-Camp, um podcast, of course, um, and it, it's just a great way to, to learn things while you're doing something else. Mm. Uh, in terms of specific books and, and blogs, I, I, yeah, I'm not going to recommend any in particular, but just yeah, the concept of being able to learn while you're doing something else, mm. uh, I, I think is, is very valuable.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us, and uh, stay posted for the next... Actually, you know, this is a question I, I heard another sure. podcaster ask somebody, and I was like, that's a really good question. I said, who would you love for me to ask next to interview?
1: Hmm, who would I like to see?
0: Um, yeah, I think I'm definitely more interested in
1: kind of the... Um, you know emerging markets in the UK in terms of what what they're good at I think one thing that I've been reading up a bit about is is for example quantum computing and yeah. there's a few companies uh, up in Oxford and Cambridge that are focused very much on that uh, and I think I like those on kind of subjects that I wouldn't hear about but could be big in a few years so Nootropics, I think uh, I also you know I, I knew about that then there was a podcast I listened to about it I think uh, you know Tim Ferris talks a lot about those I think you know things like quantum computing I think I think exposing these people who aren't really in the startup scene but are doing interesting things in technology mm-hmm. uh, that we wouldn't hear about otherwise is, is a great opportunity for you. I think most of the VCs, you know, you hear about them all the time. You read their blogs. You know, most of the founders, uh, certain ones in particular, are always up on stage at conferences. So they're basically just repeating the talking points. I think mm-hmm. if you can bring in people from you know other industries that are related to startups. People from academia doing things that will be interesting in five, ten years. I think that's more interesting than, you know, the founder that's done the circuit of being Mm. on every every conference.
0: Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. All right, quantum computing and new tropics for the next one. All right, until next time guys. Bye. Bye.